Welcome back to another episode of the Treat Addiction Save Lives podcast. Last time I checked, I'm still your host, Zach Caruso. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in once again and being part of our journey uh, and our conversations in the world of addiction medicine. You guys are in for a treat today. This was a really fun conversation with the one and only Dr. Christina Delos Reyes. She's got such an inspiring and, and human-focused view of addiction and addiction treatment. We got to talk about some really great topics and insights in this one. Dr. Delos Reyes is an addiction psychiatrist. Uh, she's also the founder and president of Club Hope Unlimited, which is a nonprofit human services organization whose mission is to create healing communities in all neighborhoods affected by addiction. Club Hope is it's really a gathering place designed for anyone impacted by addiction, as well as their family members, friends, co-workers, uh, professionals as well, like doctors, nurses, psychologists, counselors, and social workers. Get ready for a really positive and inspiring talk today. This was just such a great uplifting discussion. So let's get into it. Here's our chat with Dr. Christina Delos Reyes. So today we're talking with Dr. Delos Reyes. Thank you so much for being on with us. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Um, you you have a really interesting story as a lot of the clinicians that we've been speaking with, but um, I really want to hear a lot about, you've got Club Hope. Uh, you've got kind of this shift in your career that you've taken to, to kind of consulting and, and working with healthcare providers. There's a lot I want to cover, but first I would love to hear how did you get involved in addiction medicine in the first place? What was it that inspired that particular career path? Sure. Um, it actually started in my first year of medical school. So I do have to credit um, my medical school, which is used to be called Neo-UCOM and is now called Neo-Med. And it's located in Rootstown, Ohio. And so as a first year student, I was um, chosen by my peers to be a member of something called the Intervene Now Council. And so the, you know, sort of the charge of that group was to provide support to other medical students who may have been suffering from uh, mental illness or substance use disorders that would have placed their career in jeopardy, even as a student. And so we did a lot of education of the student body, but also providing direct help to students that reached out for it. And so from then on, I've always been interested in the idea of helping the helpers. And so the job that I have now 27 years later in my career is actually a full circle moment. Um, I actually get to do what I have always been interested in and what got me into addiction medicine in the first place, which is, you know, turning back to the health of the healthcare worker. So that's interesting. Was there anything in particular throughout your life that really inspired that kind of that kind of value or drive or desire? Can you can you think of anything that kind of puts you on that path in the first place? Um, I mean, I, I do think it was a lot of the people that I met along the way. So I got the opportunity being on this council to meet um, med students and practicing physicians that were actually in recovery themselves. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, what what a great sort of, again, what a great story of redemption, getting to turn your life around, um, you know, sinking to a very low place, but then being able to come back and continue to make a difference. So it's that kind of story that was always just amazing to me. You know, and just the fact that as physicians, we're um, very poor at taking care of our own health. And that's always fascinated me just even from sort of an anthropology standpoint, because I always loved my anthropology classes, which is why is it that the healers in a society, um, you know, take terrible care of themselves? What, what is it about that? And so I do think that has a lot to do with, um, you know, codependency and a lot of things like that, where um, you do feel, 
you know, so involved in the care of others that you end up neglecting yourself, which then kind of leads to your own problems and then you're unable to take care of other people. And so how to keep that cycle from repeating itself is something, again, that is sort of a lifelong thing that I love to study and, you know, learn about. So that's amazing. You, you've mentioned stories a few times and I know you identify as a storyteller. Um, you know, we know stories really do connect people and they, they give people hope, but I would love to hear your perspective on, you know, why do you think that storytelling is such an integral part of, um, you know, the well-being of patients, of communities? You know, how do you think that storytelling and good storytelling can really kind of bring people together and inspire them? Well, human beings were born telling stories, right? So as soon as fire was invented, you could sit around the fire and tell stories. Mm -hmm. And when you're with your family at a family reunion, what ends up happening? You sit in the circle and you tell stories. What do we do with our children every night? We read them stories. So I think it's just such an integral part of how human beings relate to the world. I mean, what is history if it's not the passed down stories, right? Before we had history books, we had oral tradition, which was basically just the passing down of stories from one generation to the next. And I think, you know, the same is true. Like I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an educator at heart. I always have been. And again, teaching is sharing the stories of what worked in the past and what might work in the future. And so without those stories to kind of hold us together, it's sort of like, well, who are we as human beings? Like we're only, we're only as good or we're only as interesting, I guess, as our stories. And so that's why I feel like just having that narrative is, is so important. You know, you, you don't, I mean, we say we treat diseases, but we actually treat human beings with diseases. Yeah. And so it's like human being first and then a person with an illness or a condition, but there's still something beyond you that's bigger than your illness. And so I think that's, that's kind of, you know, storytelling is so fundamental to just being a human being. You know, it's an, it's an incredible answer and I I agree completely. And and taking that idea of storytelling, and you've also mentioned being an educator and um, taking care of the healers, right? So that kind of leads me to a question about Club Hope. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to let you explain it, but, but as a kind of quick overview, it's, it's kind of a, a place where you're bringing together not only the people who are struggling with addiction, but friends family members, community members, coworkers, neighbors, caregivers. Um, can you tell me a little bit about some more detail about what Club Hope does and what inspired you to start something like that? So what inspired me was my own um, personal experience. So back in 2013, um, my uh, then um, husband developed the disease of alcoholism after having weight loss surgery. And so that is actually a known side effect of weight loss surgery is developing alcoholism. And he also had a family history of alcoholism. And so he was at super high risk. And so going through sort of the, just the absolute distress and the horror of, you know, having an alcoholic um, in your family and then wherever I turned, I, I just sort of felt lost and I didn't know where to go. And I wasn't sure I was getting good advice. And I thought, wow, if I'm a person that does this for a living and this is how lost I feel, I wonder how it must feel for somebody that has no knowledge whatsoever and is just kind of, you know, hit in the face with this, this illness or has to deal with maybe somebody overdosing. So, I mean, I had resources, you know, to help my husband and I did that to the best of my ability, but 
at the end of the day, I felt that there was something huge missing. Like there's this huge vacuum in society that there is nowhere to go. And so the inspiration for Club Hope was um, a place in Cleveland called The Gathering Place, which was a place started by four Jewish women who all had breast cancer. And they said, we need a place where we can just sort of have our own, you know, our own place to go. And, you know, it, it moved on from there. And, you know, now 20 years later, it's this place for anybody impacted by cancer. And I thought to myself, well, just like the gathering place, why can't we have a place for anybody and everybody affected by addiction? And so a person like myself, not only was personally affected by addiction, but also have been professionally impacted and have spent my whole life doing it. And so I thought, wow, instead of just having a place for patients, why not just having a place for people who might be impacted on multiple different levels? So I'm a community member, I'm a family member, I'm a treatment provider, right? And so I come at it from all different angles. And so that was really the whole starting point and and the seed for saying, you know, there needs to be a place like this in every single community. And one of the criticisms are one of the most common questions I get asked as well, but we already have that, you know, we have AA and we have all these things. And I'm like, well, but those are kind of like groups that are hidden in church basements. And we need to bring the disease of addiction out of the basements and we need to put it out in the streets, just like a YMCA, just like Big Brother, Big Sister. It has to be something that's in our neighborhoods that everybody knows about, that you don't have to be, you know, sneaking around after dark and trying to find the right room in the right church basement so that you can get help for a loved one with alcoholism. Right. That doesn't make any sense. And and that's kind of where it all started. Well, so. I'm really interested too, because you're kind of touching on a little bit of this idea. You know, you're talking about community, you're talking about storytelling, and you're talking about bringing it out into the light, right? Yeah. So one of the things we always kind of touch on is this idea of stigma. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear your perception of where do you think we land right now in terms of, of problems with stigma around addiction? What can be done? And what is the importance of kind of shedding that stigma? And especially what you're doing, bringing not only the people affected by addiction, but the people around them as well. How do you think all that kind of ties together? What do you think needs to be done? Um, You know, I feel like I've been saying this for a long time. We've come a long way and we still have a long way to go, right? Mm -hmm. So when I started, you barely could even talk about it, right? It was literally like a dirty secret. It's very similar to the way that when you would say the word cancer in 1940 or 1950, I mean, that was a very dark secret. And and so now we can talk about cancer. Now there's a cancer campaign with the NFL, the pink ribbons, whatnot. So we can talk about cancer now. And again, I'm always longing for the day when we're going to be able to talk about addiction the same way that we talk about, you know, the Susan G. Komen, you know, you know, race for the cure. It's got to get to that point. So clearly we aren't there yet, but we have made huge strides, right? I think there are a lot more people that are, you know, kind of coming out in the media and and things, you know, like that saying, this has been my struggle, whether it's mental illness, addiction, um, various traumas. So it's definitely, you're able to talk about it now more openly, but I still think there's a lot, there's so much shame involved. So, I mean, I can personally remember being ashamed of the things that my 
you know, my now ex-husband had done. And I'm like, I'm not even the one who who did it. I'm not the one that was driving drunk. I wasn't the one that was, you know, acting in a disorderly way. But I was so ashamed. I was ashamed to tell my parents about it. I was ashamed to tell my boss at work about it. And and so, like I said, it's that keeping of the secrets that is basically keeping people sick. And so, again, famous famous AA phrase, we're only as sick as our secrets. So once we start to put our secrets out into the open, we are going to be able to get well. As long as we kind of push it under the rug, nothing is going to happen. And, and that's, that's the insidious nature of addiction. I mean, it just sort of, it just sort of festers and it's just going to sit there and it's going to kind of ruin families and lives, mostly in a very sort of quiet way, occasionally in a big dramatic way, um, you know, like with the overdose epidemic. But um, this is just something that it's not, it's not cool to talk about it, right? So, and there's so many, there's so many levels and, and wrinkles. You know, the, I think about obituaries and how you're never allowed in obituaries to say this person died of an overdose, this person um, died by suicide. That again is is a trend that is starting to change. But if you think about it, what you might have read was passed away suddenly, right? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so again, it's always these these hushed tones and these whispers behind closed doors. And it's sort of like, okay, but (laughs) again, if we see these as no fault brain diseases, then I think it's a little bit easier to, to say I I have a no fault brain disease, you know, or my loved one has this. It's, it's the, I, I think another concept that I learned from mental health first aid was the concept that, you know, addiction and um, mental illness, they're not casserole illnesses, right? If you break your leg, if you have a heart attack, if you're suffering from cancer, people will bring you cards, flowers, and casseroles. If you have someone in your family that died by suicide, or if your son or daughter died of an overdose, you're not getting cards and casseroles and, you know, flowers. Nobody knows what to do. So people tend to stay back and do nothing. And so again, you know, if I think of something that motivates me, it's like, until addiction is a casserole illness, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing, you know, until we can talk about it like, oh, you know, so-and-so son um, had this unfortunate thing happen to them. Let's go check on them and make sure the family's okay. When was the last time that ever happened for somebody that that OD'd or, or died by suicide? It just doesn't happen. People are sort of scared or intimidated. Um, there's the shame, uh, you know, and so it's hard to ask for help and it's hard to receive help. Whereas if it is a so-called medical condition with the physical body, it's a little bit easier because people can see, oh, you know, you, you have to do chemo for six weeks or, oh, you have to, you know, wait until your leg heals up. You know, it's kind of easier to to get your brain around that right. when it's when it's addiction or mental illness. What you don't even know what to say, you know, <laughs> and and so people freeze up. So yeah. where now we've talked to some clinicians, and it's it's amazing to hear that even in the medical world, you know, the doctors and providers themselves have a little bit of stigma in the way that they they kind of write their notes or, or talk about patients. Um, Sometimes the people themselves feel so stigmatized that they won't seek treatment. Where do you think, or, or where would you like to see that change start? Is there a place that it needs to begin? Does it have to start with the providers? Does it start with the patients themselves? You know, what, what's your opinion on that? I mean, I think it's a two-way street. I think, you know, um, we have to 
really use the right language. Um, so I think language is extraordinarily important. Um, if we say a person with addiction or a person with a substance use disorder, that is a lot better than saying alcoholic or addict, right? If you have the disease yourself, I, I certainly say call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but we in the healthcare professions have to use person first language. So I think that's one place where it starts. Um, I think there are real issues that still need to be fixed, right? In some places, you can't get life insurance if the disease of addiction shows up on your problem list. That's a problem. So a lot of people, rightfully so, are hiding this because they know that they will be discriminated against. And so that perpetuates the problem. And so I, I don't claim to have an answer for how to do it, but I think that if if the disease of addiction is treated on par with other medical conditions, it will be a lot easier to have open conversation. But right now, that's not the way things are, right? Um, you can you can definitely be discriminated against because of having a mental illness or an addictive illness. Um, and even though we have the protections like the Americans with Disabilities Act, I know that the discrimination continues. Like, right, so pretending that there's no discrimination doesn't help either because it's a real thing and you can get real stories from people about what happened to them. Um, but I think it is about, you know, the 23 million plus people in recovery in this country have to be slightly more willing to be less anonymous than before, right? So we have this program called Alcoholics Anonymous. And the reason that it's anonymous is because you're getting that protection of like, people aren't going to be sort of talking about you outside of those circles. But in a way, to me, the anonymity ironically still kind of keeps it hidden. And so it's just a, it's just a conundrum. I mean, I'm the biggest fan of AA that you will ever meet. And at the same time, I know why it has to be an anonymous program. And sometimes I wish it didn't. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's just, it's baked into the 12 traditions, right? I will maintain anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. So people are just basically not talking about it or they're not supposed to talk about it if, if they, you know, profess to be part of a 12 step program. So right. that's a, that's a dilemma. <laughs> yeah. You have such a, a, a broad and kind of all encompassing umbrella that you're, that you're working with around addiction. And, and like I said, this broad spectrum of uh, people that you want to bring into um, kind of the care. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Was it last year you sort of switched roles from uh, clinician work to more coaching and teaching? Yes, I did. Yes, I did 26 years at the same place and then decided to make sort of that switch, um, you know, perhaps a little bit due to burnout, but mostly because I was just ready for something new um, in my life and, and to get back to some of my roots, which, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so this opportunity kind of came to me and I was like, oh, I grabbed it. So um, what's this been like for you? I mean, just speaking to you, you can tell you have this great ability to, to speak and tell stories and kind of bring people in with a lot of openness and honesty. What has the experience been like in this realm versus the 20 plus years that you were working as an actual uh, clinician specifically? You know, um, in some ways, it has actually been more difficult because there are 
so many rules and regulations surrounding um, the treatment of healthcare professionals. And then you multiply that by 50 states because there's a Medical Practice Act in each of the 50 states and all of those Medical Practice Acts are different. So the way a person, a doctor with alcoholism gets treated in Pennsylvania is different than in Kentucky versus Ohio versus other parts of the country. So that added a big layer of complexity, you know, to something that's already a complex disease. So I was like, wow, I didn't realize it would be that complicated. And in many ways, um, it's it's the same exact disease. It just happens to be in a place where a person typically has way more resources. And in some and sometimes their position of of power and knowledge actually makes it harder for them to recover. So it's it's ironic in a lot of ways because the more resources you have, the more you can protect yourself from consequences. And so your disease doesn't get discovered until it has to get to the point of you're showing up drunk in the operating room, right? And, and so it takes a very long time sometimes for healthcare professionals to get the help that they actually need. And then you pile on top of that sort of the stigma of being a physician or a nurse or a pharmacist or a veterinarian that has these issues. And yeah, it's like take shame and multiply it by a thousand. And again, there's another reason why people don't get help until they're late stage. So, um, so yeah, that, that's been a lot of the, the change. I think the other big change kind of goes without saying is I'm not doing any direct patient care. So um, I don't work with patients anymore. I work with um, clients or participants. And so the entire relationship between me and the docs and nurses and things that I talk to, it's quite different than when I was directly their caregiver or their prescriber. Sure. So yeah, that's, it's just, that's been a big change as well. So and with that in mind too, having now been on both sides of it, um, mm-hmm. what would, what would you like to see more from clinicians and providers? What do you think kind of needs to be done even beyond the, you know, destigmatizing? What do you think that they kind of need to bear in mind or bring to their patient relationships and treatment and recovery? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, I guess I, I still wish and long for sort of some compassion. So I, I think again, um, I would say education and compassion, right? So the earlier we can get um, to uh, med students and other trainees that this is an illness, this is a treatable illness, um, treatment makes a difference. Um, the more we can expose people to folks in long-term recovery, that starts to change the story. Like, oh, this isn't a person that is always going to be in this much trouble and they're, you know, they don't care about their health. Well, that's a person that's in like late stage illness. What if you meet somebody that's in early stage illness and you can turn their entire life around? You know, what if you meet somebody that's been sober for 20 years? People in the healthcare professions don't get those opportunities as much as they should have those opportunities to meet people in long-term recovery. I think that kind of stuff makes all the difference in the world. Like, um, And so again, I would call both on the recovery community to um, make themselves available to healthcare professionals and also call on the healthcare professionals and the schools to open up and you know, allow their students those types of opportunities. Because once you see somebody in long-term recovery, and again, I was lucky, I got to meet people who had been in recovery for a long time, even as a first and second year, you start to say, 
oh, okay, this isn't as hopeless as everybody makes it out to be. You know, is it is it a tough illness to treat? It absolutely is. You know, when I think about my ex and I know that he's still drinking, absolutely breaks my heart. But at the same time, I've also seen the miracle recoveries and I've seen the stories of people just completely turning it around. Um, so it is just one of those conditions. So, I mean, with, with such an extensive background and, and doing what you do now, if you could go back and tell yourself at a younger age, early on in your addiction medicine career, or even what would apply to other young you know, uh, pre-med doctors who want to get into addiction medicine, what advice would you give younger you or a younger doctor about to get into the field that you wish you knew when you started? Again, the most important thing is the relationship. You know, the most important thing you can have is the trust between one human being and another and, and realizing that we actually are kind of, we're on the same level, right? And if not for, you know, a stroke of luck here or there, who your parents are, the time in which you were born, I could just as easily be sitting on the other side of the table. And so for me, it's just remembering that shared humanity. That's the most important thing that leads to a person's recovery. I mean, it is, and, and just being able to express to another suffering human being, like, I see you and I want better things for you. To me, that's huge. I mean, that's 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 what is at the heart of Club Hope, right? Which is how do you bring hope to what seems to be a hopeless situation? Um, you know, I wish I would have known more about 12-step programs. Um, I wish I would have understood uh, what that was about, you know, but sometimes you, you come to that when you come to it, you know? <laughs> so um, you can't always choose that. But just even more education about what is what is the role of sort of spirituality and you know because spirituality is another area that um is kind of kept out of the healthcare professionals because it's not scientific enough that's interesting okay and 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 to me it's it's at the heart of so much of what i do has a spiritual basis it's about spiritual practices and principles that keep a human being on the straight and narrow and help them get toward recovery and I can't, I could never do my job without that knowledge of how to share that with people, how to, you know, take it in for myself and live it out in my own life. I mean, hugely important. And again, it gets, it gets sort of siloed and put to the side, which is a shame because I think that, you know, science and, you know, I don't know who said it, but it's sort of like, um, if, if, if science is like the thumb, then, you know, religion is like the pointer finger and you kind of got to do this to close the circle. Like they're not as far apart as people make it out to be like, oh, well, if you're a scientist, you can't be religious. Or if you're religious, you can't be a scientist. And I'm like, uh, yeah, just look around the planet and you'll kind of understand that it's it's all the same thing. We're just <laughs> maybe talking about it in slightly different terms. Um, so yeah, that, that spiritual piece is hugely, uh, has been a a huge part of my own job satisfaction in addiction medicine. So tell me more about that. I find that really interesting because I think there's probably a perception sometimes that spirituality immediately goes to a religious practice, right? But right. there's a lot of aspects of spirituality. It could be meditation. It could be just yes. self-examination and asking yes. yourself honest questions. What Talk to me a little bit about that idea of spirituality in, kind of integrated into treatment and recovery. What things really impact someone? So, So to me, you know, spirituality is 
sort of the feeling as a human being that you are part of something bigger than just you. Religion is sort of an organized way of expressing that feeling of spirituality. So that's how I can sort of see that you don't need the two. So can I recognize that Alcoholics Anonymous was created by Christian white men in 1930s United States? I absolutely can. But when you look deeper at the principles, you're going to see basically the same things that transcend all of, you know, it transcends the time and the space, right? It's about um, owning up and being responsible for your own actions. It's about asking for forgiveness. It's about forgiving other people. It's about realizing that you're not God. You're not the end all be all. It's recognizing your own powerlessness in the face of, you know, some harsh realities. See, to me, that has, that, that has nothing to do with religion. That just has to do with, with human truths, right? And, but, but amazingly, you know, when you look at the power of AA, you know, almost in every country of the world, every language in the world, they have Alcoholics Anonymous. You can see that it's so translatable, right? And then just in the last six months, I've learned about this thing called Dharma recovery, which takes Buddhist principles and turns it into recovery. And so for people that that are, you know, maybe have been harmed by Christianity or people that feel very uncomfortable with the word God or, you know, a recognition of a higher power, you know, as, as God, there are other ways of getting at that very important concept of, I am not alone on this planet. I have responsibilities to myself and others. You know, I am not just going to be sort of here and then gone. Like I matter and I've got a larger purpose in my life those things to me transcend all religion. That's actually just about being human and what does it mean to be human, be alive, make a difference. And if you don't, and I think if you don't have that, it's very hard to then get to recovery because when you're in recovery, you're feeling super connected to the rest of the universe. You're feeling like life is good. You've got sort of the energy flow and anything's kind of possible. Like, when I like people say, well, how do you know that somebody's in recovery? I'm like, it's in the look in their eyes. You can actually see it, right? You can actually see when somebody's working a, a good program. It's it's hard to right. That's not something I can I can measure with like you know a thermometer or a blood pressure cuff, but it's the sparkle in somebody's eye, right? It's the way that they look at you. It's the the things that come out of their mouths. It's the way that they might you know, seem peaceful or tranquil. That's good recovery. So those are the types of things, you know, like it, it's great if you haven't had anything to drink or you haven't used heroin in, you know, five years, that's wonderful. And how is your spiritual life going? You know, <laughs> Because getting off the substances is just the very basic bottom line. I'm looking for people that are kind of thriving in their own world and feeling connected and feeling successful, that's recovery, right? Recovery is so much more than not using substances. Not using substances is the bare minimum. But then how are you connecting to yourself and to other people and to the world? 
that's to me that's where that's where the the cool stuff starts <laughs> so i love that and we we spoke to uh, another provider who who made a similar comment about you know she feels that we need to stop having a, a low bar for people in recovery and saying it's just not using the substance but what more do you want to accomplish and, and get from your life so exactly. hearing that's really incredible um as a storyteller, yeah. as someone with all this experience, I'm wondering if there's any story that kind of stands out in your mind uh, that's impacted you over your 20 plus year career now in, in not only uh, being a provider, but now Club Hope and kind of being an educator and a consultant and teacher. Um, gosh, it's it's hard to pick um, just one story, but I will say that um, I have kept all of the thank you notes that I have gotten from my patients over the years, um, whether it was from something as small as "thank you for being my doctor" to um, "thank you for saving my life." I, I don't think I would be here without your help. And um, so it's just those long-term re- relationships that you build over time, right? I'm talking about patients that had been with me for 15 plus years and saying goodbye to them when I left my job at university hospitals. That was, that was the worst. That was the worst part of it is just knowing that I was part of their story for a little while, but I really wasn't going to get to see the, the rest of the story, so to speak. That was the toughest part, but, but, you know, it was something I realize now that it was something that had to happen in my own story. And so now as sort of um, a coach and a mentor for other people, you know, yes, you're going to have to um, give up certain parts of your life to get to other parts of your life. Um, And that's just part of the cycle, right? So yeah, but I I do really appreciate, it's like the folks that took the time to um, reflect and say, you know what? Thank you. And and I do the same for, for my teachers and my doctors and the people that have been for me, you know, there for me along the way. I, I do make sure to to hold that gratitude and just to say, you know what, thanks for for getting me to to where I am today. Um yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And given that we're gonna be uh sharing this uh, during National Addiction Treatment Week, I'd love to hear if if people that listen take away nothing else from this episode, from this fantastic talk that we've had, what would you like maybe in an elevator pitch in a few sentences, what would you like them to take away and know and kind of internalize about addiction medicine and patient relationships? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I would my parting words would be um treatment changes lives and people are so worth it. Um, and we just have to stick around long enough, uh, for that miracle to happen. So that's what I would say. Amazing. Dr. Dillis Reyes, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been a fantastic time talking with you and I hope you come back again. Yes. Thank you for the opportunity. Appreciate it. I'll tell you what, it's really hard not to have a smile on her face when you talk to Dr. Delos Reyes. She's probably one of the most positive and optimistic folks that I've had the pleasure of interviewing. So a big thank you going out to her for such a great talk today. We hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Be sure to check out our show notes. You can learn more about Dr. Delos Reyes and all of her current projects, including links to Club Hope to learn more about that. 
We got more great episodes coming your way soon. So come back, hang out with us again. And it is now that time of the podcast. You know it's coming. I know what you're thinking, Zach. You sound like a broken record, but guys, I can't help it. It's my job to remind you that it is Treatment Week now through the 22nd. You already know what to do. Get on it. Use that hashtag Treatment Week. Stay up to date with all of our awesome content this week and visit TreatAddictionSaveLives.org to learn more and get involved. Thank you guys again for being part of our community. And until next time, Treat Addiction, Save Lives.